So welcome back. This is Preparing to Serve, part two. In part one, we shared God's glorious vision for the family, and then we shared some hard realities that the enemy is not committed to our family's success. And we talked about uh, the effect of individualism, the effect of feminism, and the effect of our hectic lifestyles. We don't want to leave you discouraged. We want to now talk about solutions. What can we do to strengthen the family? So let us bow our heads for a word of prayer. Precious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that your word gives us all of the material that we need to strengthen our families. Help us, Father, to take a hold of the truths that are contained therein and to put them to practical use as we seek to strengthen our families and to have families that are God-honoring and families that will be a light to other families, encouraging them to press forward to the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to begin our second session now with... uh, having a message on the solution for strengthening the family. So what can be done to make a family strong in a society that is bent on pulling them down? The first thing we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about quite a few different aspects, but the first thing we're going to talk about is embracing God's order for creation. Sean went and talked about the, uh, you know, the, the Genesis account of how God created um, the earth. But we're going to go over that again just briefly. How he created the human family. The best way to prepare, to serve, to give as a family is to, is to step back a moment rather than you know, just rushing and all we need to do this and all we need to do that and all we need to do the other. But to step back for a moment and remember what the image of God is. It is self sacrificing love. That is the essence of God himself. And then he came down, and when he decided to make the human family, he made them in that self-same image. Let's read it in Genesis, chapter 1, 26 and 27. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And so a family reflected God best. Sean talked about this. A man alone was the first thing God said was not good. Not that the man was not good, but that the man being alone was not good. And so God made a woman. And he didn't just make her out of the, the, you know, the dust of the ground like he had made Adam out of the dust of the ground. He made her from Adam. And then here comes when Adam first saw Eve, he reacted immediately and he, he spoke her name and said that she would be called woman because she was taken out of man. And if you look at the Hebrew and the words that, that, that Adam spoke, their names are so similar, but they're different. They are, they are, they are one but they are individual, and it's a beautiful picture of what God has done. Really, how could man reflect the image of God alone? You know, God is a king, and, and Adam could be a king just over creation. You know, uh, he, was, he was given dominion over the creatures, over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, etc. So he could extend dominion, but God is also a tender, loving care provider, a caretaker, a provider, a protector, 
a gentle heart, a friend, a servant, a strong leader that watches over something made in his image. And Adam couldn't do that for the horses and frogs. And that's why God made him a woman. And that, and, and God made a woman and brought them together. And that's why the two of them together made the image of God. What resulted when Adam and Eve were brought together was a picture of self-sacrificing, life-producing love. It was a picture of kingly strength, of servant leadership, of protection, of gentleness, of companionship on the one side. And on the other side, beautiful love and happy contentment, willing service, joyful following on the other. Elizabeth Elliot, in her book, Quest for Love, she talks about, she's talking about these um, uh, gender roles and, and how they're different, but they are gloriously different, and how they are complementary at the same time. And, and the illustration she uses was she said that they were in, in uh, she and her husband were in Vienna once, and they were watching a professional, uh, a professional uh, pair of, of people waltzing. And she said it was the most beautiful you know, example she had seen in a long time of graceful rule and glad submission. Because she said, you know, if, if one of them obviously had to lead out, and if, the, if both were trying to lead out, what would have resulted? Chaos. And that's what inevitably we've ended up seeing in our society also. So we have a sin problem now. We have this perfect, beautiful thing that, that God created where it was to be just glorious and, 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 and no domineering attitudes, no, no, no brushing each other aside, no ignoring one another. But now sin enters the picture, and suddenly we have this, we have selfishness. We have sharp words. We have unkind attitudes. We have blame going on and pride and, and abuse, and all these things immediately come into the human family. And suddenly what, what had been beautiful and perfect is now broken. And there's wounds, and there's bruises, and there's hearts that are destroyed, and suddenly, we are no longer able to be a blessing and you know, an abundant help to each other because we're off damaged in our own corner. That's where redemption came in. And God came down to rescue this race. But the first step in being able to then go around and as a family serve a hurting world around us is to, is to find that healing grace ourselves. Because if we are so busy with our own, you know, strongholds and struggles and abuses, how can we then go and be a life-producing force in the world around us? So God wants a little heaven on earth for each family, for each home. But the first way to access that is to follow the structure of his kingdom, a reflection of the way God leads and serves his church and the way his church renders adoring submission back to him. For men, that means... Letting God build the steel and the velvet, the leadership and the service, the stuff of the kingdom of heaven back into their hearts. I love the words to the song, A Few Good Men. Has any, have any of you heard that song? Oh, it's, it's, it's a dramatic song. I absolutely love it. But the, 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 the first verse and the chorus say, What this dying world could use is a willing man of God who dares to go against the grain and works without applause, a man who holds the shield of faith, protecting what is pure his love is tough and gentle, a man whose word is sure. It says God doesn't need an order who knows just what to say. He doesn't need authorities to reason him away. He doesn't need an army to guarantee a win. He just needs a few good men. 
And then the chorus says, men full of compassion who laugh and love and cry, men who face eternity and aren't afraid to die, men who will fight for freedom and honor once again. He just needs a few good men. Gentleness, after all, you know, we, we, we hear the term ladies and gentlemen all the time. You know, we go through the airports and generally, you know, the, the flight attendant speaks ladies and gentlemen. And it's something that we are accustomed to hearing, but we don't actually stop to think what it means to be a lady and what it means to be a gentleman. A gentleman, a gentleness is, after all, strength under control. You cannot be gentle if you are helpless. Right? I mean, we don't call like something that couldn't raise their arm anyway a gentle thing. That's a helpless thing. Nor do we call something that rushes in and does their own will their own way a gentle thing either. Gentleness is by its very nature strength that is held under control. For men, that is the grace to lead by love and the strength to lay life down. That is the magnificence of manhood, and a good man will change the world. What about a woman? The wife and the mother, or the girls in the household also, it's all the same. It, it, it's not just, oh, that's for the parents, and then we do whatever we want down here until we're off, and we get married, and then we become parents, and then we'll have to do that. No, it's the same thing all the way along. We're growing up into the image of God, each of us individually, as the days go by. So for a woman, that means to be the very heart and the joy of a beautiful home, with all her creativity on the forefront, to bring a sunny support, careful, intelligent guidance and discernment and love. That's by Laurel Damstedt. A woman who is willing to do and dare and die for the kingdom of heaven. A girl who is the inspiration of a great man and his motivation to live higher. And a girl that is the sun in the sky of every child around. That's what God intended. You know, I, I love this, this quote. I want to read to you by Peter Marshall. He was the, the chaplain of the United States Senate right, right post-World War II and for a couple of years before his death. Listen to these dynamic words that he says. He says, the modern challenge to motherhood is the eternal challenge, that of being a godly woman. The very phrase sounds strange in our ears. We never hear it now. We hear of every other kind of woman, beautiful women, smart women, sophisticated women, career women, talented women, divorced women, but seldom do we hear of a godly woman or of a godly man either, for that matter. I believe, he continues, women come near to fulfilling their God-given function in the home than anywhere else. It is a much nobler thing to be a good wife than to be Miss America. It is a greater achievement to establish a Christian home than it is to produce a second-rate novel filled with filth. It is a far, far better thing in the realms of morals to be old-fashioned than to be ultra-modern. The world has enough women who know how to hold their cocktails who have lost all their illusions and their faith. The world has enough women who know how to be smart. It needs women who are willing to be simple. The world has enough women who know how to be brilliant. It needs some who will be brave. The world has enough women who are popular. It needs some who are pure. We need women, and men too, who would rather be morally right than socially correct. I love that. I love that. And all this sounds nice. I mean, we talk about it, it's like, this is dramatic, this is wonderful. You know, we, we need to lift up this high, these wonderful ideals. But when the rubber actually meets the road, suddenly we find that it's not as easy as the glorious thing sounds. 
it takes sacrifice. It takes the laying aside of our own agendas, our own plans, and our own comforts, and a willingness to live by the words of Scripture. It takes a willingness to get on our knees and beg God daily to build the strength of His kingdom into our lives. Now, Natasha shared uh, God's order of creation as one of the solutions for strengthening the family. We want to speak now about another Another biblical solution to the problem of weakening families, and that is found in the story of Abraham. You know, as Christians, we are commissioned to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Now, we read that this work for Christ is to begin in our families, in our home. There is no mission field that is greater than the mission field of our home. We are told that the greatest evidence of the power of Christianity that can be presented to the world is a well-ordered, well-disciplined family, a God-honoring, vibrant, happy, cohesive, fully functioning family. This will recommend the truth as nothing else can, for it is a living witness of its practical power upon the heart. This given by the servant of the Lord in Adventist Home, page 32. Well, how can our families become a living witness? How can we achieve God's ideal for families in a world where families are falling apart? What lessons can we learn from the patriarchs in the Bible? How did God help Abraham accomplish what he, God, envisioned for Abraham and his family? That he would communicate a legacy of faithfulness throughout the ages. Well, we read in Patriarchs and Prophet, page 126. Here's the principle. In order that God might qualify him, talking about Abraham, for this great work as the keeper of the sacred oracles, Abraham must be separated from the associations of his early life. Did you hear that? Abraham needed to be separated from the associations of his early life. The influence of kindred and friends would interfere with the training which the Lord purposed to give his servant. Now, Abraham was, in a special sense, connected with heaven. He must dwell among strangers. His character must be peculiar, differing from all the world. He could not even explain his course of action so as to be understood by his kindred and by his friends. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and his motives and actions were not comprehended by his idolatrous kindred. This is found in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 126, chapter 1. So now, what is the lesson that we need to learn from this passage? This is what we understood. We need to separate ourselves from the world. Whatever form the world is taking in our lives, whether it is friendships, a career, a lifestyle, a location, we must separate ourselves from it. This is the one lesson that we learned that was obvious from the life of Abraham. Now, we're not talking about being hermits. We're talking about separating ourselves from the influences of the world. Am I being clear? So that means that we need to take a hard look at our family, at our lives, and to ask ourselves, what is the influence of our world around us? 
and is the influence bringing us closer to the ideal that God has for our family, or is it taking us away from that ideal? That's the question that we need to ask of ourselves. And if the answer is that it is bringing toward his ideal, we continue on that path. And if the answer is, no, it's not, then we need to reevaluate and separate ourselves from that influence that is taking us away from God's ideal for our family. Let's talk about another biblical solution to strengthen the family. If you have your Bibles, look up Deuteronomy. We've made reference to this passage before, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. We have here um, another biblical solution, and it is obedience to a great mandate to parents. And obeying this mandate means choosing a lifestyle that's going to nurture spirituality in our homes. So let's look at it. Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command you today shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Do you hear in this scripture the emphasis on the priority of God's word? The emphasis that it should have, that that priority should have in our lives? Is that the way you live your life? Or do you find yourself not having the time for this sort of thing because the important always gets sacrificed on the altar of the urgent? We have discovered in our personal experience as a family that this is an ongoing battle. Friends, we've been working at this balance for 20 Years, well, it was 20 years ago when we really engaged, when we really turned to the Word of God and we looked at our lives and, and we realized that we were not investing in eternity. But it requires that we be intentional and that we be persevering because many times along the way we have stopped and we have reconsidered and we have reordered our priorities. And yet, it, it creeps in again. Mm-hmm. So we have to be intentional. We have to be committed to ongoing evaluation of our course and willing to make hard choices. Hard choices that are going to disappoint others to keep our priorities in gospel order. We really should have a regularly scheduled time to do this. The Old Testament ends with a prophecy of a voice of one that would cry in the wilderness, calling people to repentance and reformation, preparing a people for the first coming of the Lord. It's found in Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6. And it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. We are told that this message is applicable 
um, also at the end of time in order to prepare people for the second coming of the Savior. And we think that it is very appropriate that this end time message would include turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and of the children to their fathers because parents in this day and age don't have time for their children. They don't have time for communicating spiritual values to their children while they sit in their houses. No time to spend talking or working together on projects or playing with their children to befriend them, to win their hearts. It's no wonder that in their teens, the hearts of our children are much more bound to the hearts of their peers with whom they do spend time than to the hearts of their parents. We need to give ourselves to our children not only for that moment by moment instruction in godliness and correction that Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, makes reference to, but also in pleasant, refreshing association and companionship in work and recreation that binds the hearts of parents to children. And the children's hearts to the parents in a bond that cannot be easily broken. I want to share a poem with you shared by a preacher that really calls to the heart of every father. So as you're, as you're listening to this, just let the spirit uh, call to your heart if that's needful. There isn't a boy who wants to grow manly and true at heart and every lad would like to know the secret we can impart. He does not want to slack or shirk, or haven't you heard him plead? He'll follow a man at play or work, if only a man would lead. Where are the men to lead today, sparing an hour or two, teaching the boy the game to play just as a man would do? Village and slums are calling, come, here are the boys indeed. Who can tell what they might become if only a man would lead? Where are the men to lend a hand, echo it far and wide, men who will rise in every land, bridging the great divide? Nations in flag and tongue unite, joining each class and creed. Here are the boys who would do right, but where? are the men to lead. It really was an encouragement to my heart to make it much more intentional to lead in my family. In the book Child Guidance, in which we have found a treasure of wisdom for godly parenting, on page 148 it says, you must win their affection if you would impress religious truth upon their hearts. So it's not just for fun. It's a matter of life or death. It's a matter that concerns eternal life. We become more influential with our children when we have that heart-to-heart -heart connection. Mm -hmm. We have made some very hard choices over the years in order to maintain that priority of carving out the time for togetherness, for family togetherness each day. Though we did not have not achieved our goal 100% of the time, we did it consistently enough that our young people look back 
and they agree that the strong heart bond that we share with one another today is um, in, in, a, in a large measure responsible for... Um, Spending time together is a large part responsible. Yes, for the way that they have embraced Christianity, embraced the values that we try to pass on to them. Um, it made them more willing to hear what we had to tell them about God and more willing to embrace those values. So we encourage you to make that lifestyle of Deuteronomy 6, of talking about these things um, while you share companionship, when you rise up and when you lie down as you walk by the way. Communicate the blessings of familiness and rehearse all that is important, all that God has said. Raise the standard of honor in your home. Honor, friends, is a foreign concept in our modern, um, in this day and age. So work diligently to teach them honor and at the same time to win their hearts. Take interest in their interests. Take time. Ellen White says, we prepare the soil of the heart with love and affection, thus preparing it to receive the seed of truth. Adventist Home, page 18. This will strengthen the bond of love between you and make it easier for them. It'll make it more pleasant for them to submit to your authority and to honor and reverence your leadership, not just when they're young, but praise the Lord, even in their teens and beyond into young adulthood. I want to talk just a little bit more about the concept of honor you know, it used to be, especially in this country, that when someone said something, they were going to do something, you could depend on them to fulfill their word unequivocally. It used to be that when a, a, a more senior individual walked in the door, everybody else got up out of their seats. It used to be that the young people were, were tuned and honed to listen to the advice of their parents. But these things have steadily decreased and it's because there has been a, an undermining of the concept of honor within society. Let's look at an example, a biblical example of honor. We find one in Jeremiah 34. It's a parable that was acted out. Jeremiah did very many acted, uh, acted out parables for the, the children of Israel whom he was trying to minister to at the time. And, and God directed him to take a, a certain family, the, family the, the, the children of Jonadab, the son of Rechab. They were adults at that point. Apparently Jonadab was either old or perhaps he had already passed away. And, and they brought him into the temple. They set them down in obviously a very public location. And they put wine before them. Jeremiah did. Now, Jeremiah was a, very, uh, a prophet in Israel. Those that did not hate him strong, uh, highly respected him. Obviously, he was very disliked because he, he, he spoke uh, the words of God, and, and Israel was in a major state of apostasy at the time. But he sets down wine before all these individuals, and he, he commands them to drink it. And their immediate reaction is, uh, no, you know, with all due respect, we cannot do that. And he's like, why can't you do that? I'm telling you, drink wine. They refused to do it, and he had all this discussion with them, and, and they said that their father, Jonadab, had commanded them not to drink wine forever. 
And so they weren't going to do it. And so then God uses those people's actions as, a, as a, a, an acted out parable to the, to the children of Israel of what they ought to be doing to their heavenly father's commands. Let's read in Jeremiah uh, 35, pardon me, Jeremiah 35, 13 and 14. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will ye not receive instruction to hearken to my words, saith the Lord? Verse 14, the words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For unto this day they drink none, but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened unto me. Then in 18 and 19, this is God's response. And Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Because ye have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all that he hath commanded you, therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not want a man to stand before me forever. That's a pretty strong remark. So here God comes along, and he's using this family as an illustration of the obedience that he wants from the whole nation to himself. But obviously in the whole nation, the concept of obedience and honor towards their authority, which was God, had been so undermined that this was now a foreign thing. And God had to use an illustration of this nature. God took note of this high standard of honor. And he made a promise that there would never be an extinction of the, the Rechabite line. And actually, very interestingly, there's a, there's a passage in Ellen White and I am not remembering precisely if she's directly speaking or if she is quoting someone else, but they said that in her day, there were Rechabites living in Yemen, and they still didn't drink wine. That's kind of remarkable. To us, it's like, you know, that, that, that means nothing to us anymore. It's like, oh, why would you do that for so many thousands of years now? Perhaps we don't believe in drinking wine anyway, so we're like, well, I, you know, that's fine. I wouldn't do that. But at the same time, the concept of obeying godly, wise counsel has been smudged out and erased in our lives. But God takes note of it and highly recommends it and richly rewards it as we, as we remember you know, how, how Paul talks. He quotes the fifth commandment saying, honor thy father and thy mother, which is the... And then he clarifies which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may well go well with you and you can live long on the earth. So, as young people, the development of the concept of honor in our own lives is an incredibly crucial key to living in, the, uh, in, in our society today and to standing out as children of God. But not only do we need to live that ourselves, but teach it to others around that we can teach it to. As, a young, as young people, we can mentor those that are younger. For parents, they can teach it to their children. I want to go into just briefly practical ways to teach honor to others. You know, this first thing is actually something you could, oh, something you can do, but also something you can avoid doing. That is, I've, I've watched with, with tremendous curiosity some very well-meaning parents that I know, and, and you know, they'll be busy, and the children are underfoot, and running around, and high energy, and whatever, so they, they, they take their children, and they, they set them down in the living room, and, and they let them watch cartoons. And then the children stay out from underfoot, so then the parents are able to accomplish a lot more. Well, however, what the children are doing is they're sitting on this little couch watching cartoons. And their cartoon characters are like, 
and, you know, swinging fists and slapping each other and, you know, not getting on very well. And then those children come when the cartoon is over into the rest of the house. And what are the kids doing? I mean, almost essentially the same thing that the, the parents had been doing or that they had just been watching the cartoon characters doing. And the parents were like, get a grip. Why can't the kids be in control of themselves? Well, I think children do need to be able to control themselves no matter what they are surrounded with. That's a you know, part of self-control and a part of maturity. However, at the same time, it is true that children learn by observation. And what they see is often what they do. It's the same thing for us as young people. If we set before our eyes media, such as movies or other things, that depict sensuality, that depict um, you know, lust, that depict all these other things, and disrespect. disrespect the glorify worldliness, then when the movie is over, we don't find in our hearts this burning relish for the word of God, do we? No, because that part of our mind has been exercised. It's the same thing with little children. If this part of their mind is exercised, then that's the way they act out. So it's, just, it's a very simple thing, but at the same time, it's a very profound thing that what we set before ourselves is what is going to come into our lives. By beholding, we become changed. And so with little children, if their heroes are people of honor, they will, they will learn to emulate that. They will learn to become people of honor at the same time. The other concept is what I call the saturation principle. Here we have this idea that here we are in this world and the things surround us obviously affect us. We know that there is tremendous amounts of sin in the world and we know that affects us and we want to protect ourselves from it. We have looked at strong family after strong family after strong family and, and in seeking to break down, you know, what makes that family strong? What makes that family strong? What makes that family strong? And they're very different from one another. But one thing that pervades them all is a very strong culture in one way or another. They're very different from each other. Tremendous variety. But at the same time, you look at that family and they are saturated with positive things. So much so that the negative things can't get in. And it's the same thing in our lives. It's such a broad principle. I mean, it goes across the board. For when what we allow into our lives, we are like struggling with these thoughts at night, and we're like, oh, we're struggling with this, we're struggling with that. If our, if our minds were saturated with the word of God, it would crowd out the covetousness, the lust, the, the, the irritation, the impatience. It would crowd these things out because the word of God has power. But the same thing can be said for children. If we fill their lives with beautiful positive things, if we fill them as mother uh, quoted earlier, Deuteronomy chapter six, where it says, you know, to teach the children diligently as you, as you sit in the house, as you walk by the way, as you lie down, as you rise up. If our lives are saturated with God, with his goodness, with his power, with his level of honor that he exercises towards us as a human race, refusing at any time to violate our rights of choice that same thing will come into our lives. The saturation principle, fill our lives with God. So I want to talk briefly about the potential consequences that can come from disobedience or even just spiritual carelessness. You know, we've, we've discussed the stories of Abram. Father talked about Abram earlier. And then um, Natasha about Jonadab. 
I'd like to briefly go over a story that actually runs concurrently with the story of Abram. A story that starts out in, in exactly the same way, but that ends in a very, very different way. And that's the story of Lot. Lot was Abram's nephew. And when Abram was, was called that on that journey of separation to go to a land that God would show him, he left the land of Egypt and he was, he was traveling along and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Now, we are told that, that though he was traveling this road of separation from the world, yet there was a very large retinue, right? Because Abram's household was very large. He was a wealthy man, and we're actually told later on in the scripture when it's, when it's talking about um, when Abram actually went with his servants that were trained for war, I think the number was over 300 of just the male servants that were trained for war. So we know that his household was very large. And they said that his, um, his herds and his animals were huge. I mean, he was a very wealthy man. Well, Abram and Lot are, are traveling where the Lord is leading them. And all of a sudden, some contention arises between um, Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. We can read the story um, in Genesis 13. And uh, Abram turns to Lot and he says, let there not be this contention between us. I tell you what, here, you choose which way you want to go, left or right, and I'll go the other way. And so Lot looks around and he chooses the plain of Jordan. Why does he choose the plain of Jordan? Because it is well watered and it is very beautiful. And he's sure that his, 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 um, his animals and his crops and everything will do very well there. Unfortunately, there is one thing that Lot did not stop to consider. And if he did, um, it's unfortunate that he went forward anyway. And that was the fact that the, the people that were surrounding the area that he chose to dwell, that he chose to move his family, were living in abject wickedness. And... We're told, it's a biblical principle, that by beholding we become changed. Luke's, Luke's, not Luke at all, Lot. Lot's family was influenced by those, by those uh, influences around him, by that abject wickedness and sin. And um, the, Bible, the Bible account, I, I believe actually that, that Lot preserved some level of, of spirituality, of righteousness, of connection with God. However... He did begin to, um, to lose the differentiation between what we would consider gross sin because of the, the, the influences that were diminishing uh, his keen sense. And so because of Lot's oversight, you could say, the story took a very sad turn. And, and we, know, we know the story, so we're not going to get into all the details. But, but actually, Lot even came to the point that when the angels came down and they said, get your family out, Lot was reluctant to leave. The angels actually had to take him and remove him from the city before raining down the brimstone and destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a high price to pay for Lot to move his family, to move his, his herds and everything to that plain and to lose it all in fire. Of course, he, he went away with his life and the life of his two daughters. His wife was turned into a pillar of salt on the way out. But was it really worth it for Lot? I would say not. You know, sometimes we can underestimate the importance 
of just small decisions in life. I w- I'm reminded a, of um, a circumstance that happened to us this last spring, or actually winter, end of winter, um, that amused us, but at the same time disturbed us greatly and holds a poignant lesson for this, a poignant point. Um, we are all EMTs, and we run on our ambulance service, and it's actually a volunteer ambulance service, so um, we don't get that many calls in a year. I think it averages about an eight, about 80 calls a year, so that's you know a call and a half uh, a week, approximately. Um, but we, we've, we've run on the ambulance service for several years now, but just last year, we decided that we wanted to go on to the next level of training as, as EMTs, because we live so far away from, from any hospital um, that if somebody gets injured, it really their lives are in our hands for an hour and a half until we get them to the hospital. And so we realized that one of the best things that you can do in, in a pre-hospital setting, especially if it's in the case of trauma or in another case where they're losing a lot of blood or they're dehydrated, is to give them IVs. Well, as a regular EMT, you can't do that. You have to go on to the advanced EMT level. So we decided to take the advanced EMT course, and we did it. We had a wonderful time. Uh, we realized, actually, our teacher, the first day of class, she's like, welcome to the advanced EMT class. You're about to learn about 20 more ways uh, that you can kill people. So basically, you need to be careful with the things that you're learning, right? Because when you're doing these more invasive things, it's very easy to do something wrong and to kill a person. Well, we went all the way through the class, and it came to the time for testing. And we and our classmates and also a bunch of other advanced EMT students from around the state all came together to do these practical exams. And um, one of the medications that we can give is epinephrine. Now, epinephrine is a very valuable drug if used correctly and can be a very dangerous drug if used incorrectly. If somebody's having an allergic reaction, then we can give them 0.3 milligrams um, of epinephrine into their muscle and it helps to, to open up their airway and they can breathe again so we can get them to greater, um, to greater health. However, if you were to take that same 0.3 milligrams 1 to 1,000 of the, the concentration, and you were to put that into their vein, instantly it would put their heart into cardiac standstill. They'd have asystole, because we actually we, we give that drug uh, in the case if they have a heart attack and they have some weird rhythm and their heart isn't beating right, we'll give that to them in their vein, or yeah, in their vein, and their heart will, will stop, and we hope that it will be able to start again with our uh, CPR, whatever the case may be. Well, so it's very important that you deliver the epinephrine in the right way, depending on what condition you're trying to treat. If it's cardiac and their heart is not beating, you want to give it to them in their vein. If they can't breathe, you want to give it into their muscle. Different concentrations. It's also different concentrations. One's 10 times more concentrated, correct? 10 times? Yes. So <laughs> we were there testing with our other students, and one of the students came out of the room where it was a med push test. And um, he comes out looking very, very glum. And everybody's like, oh, you know, what, what happened? What, what's going on? And he's like, I killed him. I'm like, what? It's like, I killed him. I gave them, he basically gave them a, a dose that was for the cardiac, which is we give one milligram for the cardiac, into the muscle of the wrong concentration. And um, 
I think another person actually gave them instead of into the muscle, he gave them in in the scenario, gave it into the into the vein, which of course would have killed the patient. And while that's very disturbing, I mean, you might be thinking, oh, are these the paramedics and EMTs out there that are treating me? Don't worry, he didn't pass the test. Uh, he had to go back and retake it. But it, it is just it, it struck me when I realized because of just. The fog of the moment, he wasn't really thinking. He gave the drug in just the wrong way. And instead of being beneficial and saving a life, he took a life. Just a small difference, a small change. We need to realize the impact of our small decisions. Like Lot should have realized the impact of just that one decision to move to uh, the Valley of Jordan surrounded by those influences rather than moving as Abram did to a place where um, his family would have better influences, influences surrounding them. The impact of one choice. We need to realize the, the eternal impact that our everyday choices make on our lives. Did you want to say something? Okay. You know, we need to be willing to, to make hard choices in our families and individually. Um, you know, we look back, and, and I'm amazed at sometimes thinking about the, the choices that our parents made years ago to be able to place our family in an environment that is most conducive for, for nurturing a family that is committed to God's service. Twenty years ago, uh, they left... A very successful uh, father left a successful practice and, and life in Illinois, and he moved to the countryside of Michigan. And again, um, thir- 13, 14? 14? 14 years ago, we left Michigan again and faced the disapproval, the disapproval of um, disapproval of those that were closest to us that just did not understand why my parents were making these decisions. Um, but they, they wanted to move us to the, the wilderness of New Mexico to pour even more energy um, into nurturing our family that is a, a family that is devoted to God's service. So our parents wanted to place us in a conducive environment um, for that growth and grace. And they chose to homeschool us rather than send us away to boarding school so they could have that, that maximum input into our lives. Now, it seems preposterous to us when we think of, well, not preposterous, but um, amazing to us when we think of the the choices and the ridicule that our parents faced for us back in those days. And and some of those were very difficult, not only for our our parents, but also for our entire family. But we also realized that that those choices early on have been invaluable um, in where our family is today in service to God. Now, the bottom line of all this is not my father and mother. It's not the fact that we moved from Illinois to Michigan and then to New Mexico. The fact is that, that God can do with a life amazing and powerful things if that life is just willing to give up their goals, to give up their, their, um, their desire to fit into the culture around them and be willing to allow God to transform their life as a family. You know, even 
um, over the years since we've lived, we've moved to New Mexico, we've had uh, many comments. Of course, we are we're adult children now, and we're still living in our home. And people will ask us, "Are you ever going to leave home?" And you know, we chuckle. Uh, the answer is yes. We will leave home um, in God's perfect timing. But God has blessed us with a family and a home to provide us with accountability and, and a place in which we can um, best prepare, Sean and myself in particular, as men of God to lead our futures in the family. Uh, or sorry, our families in the future. And the reality is that our little home um, has become a place from which we are sent out to the four corners of the earth in service to God. And we love that life. We love that, that privilege that God has given us to be able to live that life. So every life choice should be considered preparation for service. Whatever life circumstance we find ourselves in, whether that be um, at school, at home, whether we be living by ourselves or in a family actually, whatever life circumstance that we find ourselves in can be an opportunity to prepare for God's service. Just briefly before we close, I want to talk about family cohesion for a moment. Because we can you know, do all the right things and seek to make sure that the world stays out of our family. But if we don't remain close, what use is there to, to all live rigid and little righteous people in the same home but don't love one another? That isn't true righteousness, obviously. But I want to talk about family cohesion for a moment. Somehow, because we live in the same home or because we have the same parents, or, or for some reason are biologically connected, we don't feel the need, at times, to cultivate the friendships within our family the same way we cultivate other friendships when we meet someone and we, we want to get to know them better. And so we put energy into getting to know those people. We spend time with them, we talk with them, we, we, we do things together, and we become closer. But with our family, we think that just because you know, we're, you know, we're, we're biologically connected that it should just happen, that we should, we should get on together well. And it is true that you know, people say blood runs thicker than water, and that is true to many respects. But at the same time, the same principle should be exercised of, of drawing close to one another, of spending time, of talking with one another, of building that family cohesion, winning each other's friendships. I want to give a brief example of the power of a cohesive family. Now, before I give this example, I want to warn you that this example is an extremely... Um, secular example. It has no religious connotations whatsoever, but it is an example of the way that people that choose in, in some respect to follow God's principles reap the benefits in the, in the very end. Um, I want to contrast two worldly families that were extremely famous back in the 18, yeah, early 1900s, something like that. One of which those families is still very strong today, and the other one is essentially non-existent. The first family is the Rockefeller family. This is very interesting. We were just discussing the Rockefellers in the break, just randomly. Um, the first family, uh, John Rockefeller I, was born to an extremely poor home, dysfunctional father who lived a party life and would come home only when he was out of money to collect what the mother had barely eked together for the support of the family. He grew up having to work extremely hard merely to be able to eat. Then eventually as a young man, he left to go to New York to see if he could um, 
make some money there too because the family was so bitingly poor. And to make a very long story, to condense it, make it short, eventually John Rockefeller became um, actually the richest person, they say, in the history of, of the world that is, that is known, if you do equivalent of money from then to now, et cetera. Um, at the same time, a man named Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie, was born around the same time that John Rockefeller was born. He, too, had was born and raised in a very broken home. Parents weren't together, very poor, worked very hard. And eventually, as a, as a grown man, uh, Andrew Carnegie ended up being what people considered the second richest um, person in the history of the world that we know of. And these two men were contemporaries of each other. Both of them had only one child. John Rockefeller had John Rockefeller too, and Andrew Carnegie had his daughter. Now, John Rockefeller was a very staunch family man. He poured his life and his energy into his son. Andrew Carnegie was far more interested in his business than in his family, and he and his wife didn't really agree on their philosophy, whereas the Rockefellers did. Eventually, to speed up the story, John Rockefeller too had the five Rockefeller brothers who ended up, all of them becoming um, politicians and philanthropists. Their children, 24 cousins in all, they all continued the same concept. They were so interested in each other. The five Rockefeller brothers, who were extremely famous, built an uh, almost unrivaled political and economic structure just between them. But every, every few months, they would come, they were scattered across the country, but they would get together, spend time together, enjoy each other's company, cultivate those friendships within their family. When they had children, their children were doing it as well. Now the Rockefellers, um, the latest generation is maybe about my age, the sixth generation of Rockefellers, about 150 descendants in all, and all the Rockefellers still get together twice a year to spend time and just build the friendships within their family. The Carnegies, on the other hand, they didn't spend much time. The daughter went off did her own thing pretty much. Later in life, she did work in her father's foundation but wasn't really interested in it, did her own thing. And actually, Andrew Carnegie, does, I don't believe, has any direct descendants um, alive in the world today. Now, the Rockefellers, while I could not remotely um, condone the choices that that family has made and the agenda that that family is pushing through, in America, it is true that the Rockefellers are one of the most powerful families in the United States. The Carnegies are just a distant memory. Why? They both came up the same way, Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller. They both made massive fortunes. They both had equivalent amounts of money. One family is a distant memory. The other family is still strong, still cohesive, and still moving the world today. While we could never say that what they have done is something that a Christian would, would choose or want to do, at the same time, the principle of remaining connected as a family remains the same. Someone that is connected, one person only has so much ability to accomplish something. People that are connected with one another have that exponentially that much more ability to accomplish something, in our case as Christians, for the behalf of the kingdom of heaven. So now we want to come to a conclusion with our session on preparing to serve. You know, we need to have a vision that will help us to be intentional. We've said it over again about shaping a family that is prepared to serve. A family that will reflect the character of God. 
uh, whose lives can be a testimony to the world that this is what family is all about. So that's what Abraham and Jonadab and the testimonies that we have given, that we find in the word. We've also seen the examples of what happens when we don't do that. And we read from these principles how we can have these God-honoring, nurturing families. Ponder the following passage about the life of Abraham and consider how far we have strayed from the principles that we are sharing with you today. This is found in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 141, chapter, I mean, uh, paragraph 2 and 3. In early times, the father was the ruler and priest of his own family. And he exercised authority over his children, even after they had families of their own. Now, we have to understand to put this in balance, that we're not talking about Abraham telling his grown children what to do with their families. That's not what we're talking about here. But his descendants were taught to look up to him as their head in both religious and secular matters. This patriarchal system of government, Abraham endeavored to, as it tended to preserve the knowledge of God. It was necessary to bind the members of the household together in order to build up a barrier against the idolatry which they were surrounded with in the communities that they were living in. That was so widespread and so deep-seated. Abraham sought by every means in his power to guard the inmates of his encampment, everybody who was there, against mingling with the heathen and bringing in those idolatrous practices which were so destructive to the family. The greatest care was exercised to shut out every form of false religion and to impress the mind with the majesty and glory of the living God as the true object of worship. It was a wise arrangement which God himself had made to cut off his people as far as possible from the connection with the heathen, making them a people dwelling alone and not reckoned among the nations. He had separated Abraham from his idolatrous kindred that the patriarch might train and educate his family apart from the seductive influences which would have surrounded them had they stayed in Mesopotamia and that the true faith might be preserved in his purity by his descendants from generation to generation. Isn't that a wonderful thought? You know, we want to preserve what God intended for us to have as family. So these four principles we wanted to leave you with that the biblical examples we have considered today have in common. Here's the first one, strong male leadership. Natasha talked earlier about embracing God's order of creation from the feminine standpoint. You know, I just wanted to speak to the young men who are here today and those who will be listening to this message that Satan has not only distorted God's ideal for men and for women and and has made their God-given roles seem distasteful. But he has also made men relinquish, he is also, the enemy I'm talking about, has made men relinquish their sacred responsibility of servant leadership. Servant leadership. Young men, it's time for you to rise up as men of God. And I make this reference to a quote in the world's need of noblemen found in the book Education, prepared to become engaged husbands and fathers that will provide strong spiritual leadership and love their family sacrificially as Christ loves his church, capable of teaching their children 
honor and obedience. Second of all, to prepare to establish a lifestyle that allows you to cherish the wife that God has given you and win the hearts of your children and nurture a strong, cohesive family. This sets the foundation which allows you to communicate and to share the spiritual values with your children, with your family. Number three, to successfully teach your children to embrace a high standard of honor and obedience. Our children will not learn that, however, if we are not living God-honoring lives. And last but not least, to separate from the world, refusing to adopt unbiblical philosophies or take part in the wickedness and apostasy and being prepared to stand loyal to God. So ask God to call to your hearts, young men and young women, parents, parents parents-to-be, to understand how the habits and practices that we have currently adopted from our modern culture are undermining the spirituality in you and in your family. Be willing to make what, I call, what we call counter-culture decisions, if necessary, to accomplish the goal of nurturing a family that is prepared to serve. May God bless you as you open your hearts to what he is trying to teach you for your specific family. We're not here to tell you what you need to do, but God can instruct you what you should do. And with his strength and grace, you can make those decisions that will result in having a family that is prepared to serve. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, as we have shared today, we know that there is much that you have to teach every one of us. And you know, we just need to be much more aware of the effects that our culture has on ourselves and on our family that are not God-honoring. Help us, Father, to be willing to take a bold stand to raise up the standard so that we will have families that will be God-honoring. Thank you for being there to encourage us, to strengthen us in the way that we need to go. In Jesus' precious name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.